Welcome back, everybody. This is Dave Rowland, the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri, sitting in for Gary Nolan this morning. And let me tell you, if, if you listen to the show and you've heard when I've had the opportunity to guest host, one of the things that I really love to do is to take the opportunity to highlight the work that it's being done uh, by pro-liberty litigation organizations like my own, the Freedom Center of Missouri. And so I am thrilled this morning um, that we're going to get the chance to speak with Sam McRoberts, who is the litigation director for the Kansas Justice Institute, just our neighbor to the West. Uh, Sam and I have known each other for a few years now. I tried to get him on the show the last time I was hosting, but he had an intervening circumstance that prevented that from happening. Sam, do you want to fill people in on why you couldn't join me the last time I hosted this show? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and good morning, by the way. So yeah, good morning. We uh, were blessed to have our third child, and so I was unable to make it, but uh, for all for a good reason. Yeah, of, of all the reasons not to be able to uh, come on the air and chat with me, that's a pretty good one, welcoming, welcoming <laughs> your third child to the world. I, I trust everything is going well with the little one. Are you getting enough sleep these days? Uh, everything is going great except for the no sleep, and uh, so I think I'm going on now two months of no sleep, oh, but yeah. it's, it's all worth it. Yeah, it's all worth it. It and is worth of it. Of course, my wife is the one who's mostly uh, up all the time, so kudos to her for, for doing all of the really hard work. Yeah, sure enough, sure enough. So um, I would like the audience to kind of learn a little bit about you and how you got into uh, the Litigating for Liberty line of work. So could you fill them in a little bit on your background? Yeah, sure. And if any point, just, you know, if I start to get boring or repetitive, just... I will not allow that. <laughs> Good. So I, I uh, grew up in Leewood, Kansas, suburb of Kansas City, and went to KU for law school and graduated. We won't hold that against I, you. I know, I know. Um, and started practicing in a law firm in Kansas City that did mostly insurance defense work. But from time to time, the partners would let us uh, do civil rights litigation outside of outside of the scope that we normally would do. And I found it really interesting. Like, I love doing civil rights litigation. I love doing kind of like the excessive force cases and really pushing back against um, the government where we could. And it was also kind of cool because the firm is in Kansas City, so there you get appointed to do some very low level criminal defense cases or kind of like the juvenile in need of care type type issues. And so I, I found that really interesting. Like I loved doing some of those types of cases and I like doing insurance defense a little bit, but for me, what got me mostly excited was all that other stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then, and so then I had an opportunity to um, do criminal defense work outside of the state. And we, my, then fiance and now wife and I, we moved and I started doing only criminal defense for about three years. And I was doing everything from DUIs up to helping out with murder cases. And to me, that was the, uh, A, it was like a major eye-opening experience for me because I got to see how the criminal justice, justice system actually worked. But also, and it really kind of forms my litigation practice now, Every single day, I got to fight against the government. And it's a government that has, you know, they've got experience, they've got money, they've got the public behind them. And the only thing that was really standing between 
my client in jail was me. Right. And that's where I really kind of developed my, my chops for saying, hey, this isn't right, and we're going to fight this, and we're going to do everything we can to protect this person from the government. And I loved it. I, I thought it was so cool. Um, and every day I was in the courtroom, you got to think on your feet, you're doing trials, you're doing motions. And it was such an awesome experience. And then went from that to doing criminal defense work and um, civil rights litigation as well. And I did that for about six years and then ended up moving back to to the Midwest. So when was it that you got the Kansas Justice Institute off the ground? And if you would, let's let's go ahead and share the website for the Kansas Justice Institute. So if people are interested, they can check it out. Yeah, absolutely. So we started Kansas Justice Institute in 2019. And you can take a look at all of the work we've done at kansasjusticeinstitute.org. Kansasjusticeinstitute.org. It's all spelled out. And, and we started up, you know, like I said, in 2019 um, with just, it was just me and an advisory council and started getting to work there. Yeah. So uh, what, what were some of the first cases that you brought once you got your organization off the ground there? Our, our very first case, I, I love this case still. It's awesome. I, I'm smiling as I'm even thinking about it. So in Kansas, uh, you're, you are allowed to produce and sell unpasteurized milk on your farm. So it's called raw milk. And there has been, there was a statute on the books for about 50 years that said, yes, you can produce and sell raw milk on the farm, but you cannot talk about raw milk away from the farm. <laughs> and so it was, I, at first when I heard about this, I, Somebody told me about it. I was like, no, that, that's not true. That, that actually can't be. Right, that, that cannot be true, right? Like, no, <laughs> Except that's, that's that it is. Right. <laughs> like, this has got to be like quadruple. Uh, somebody's telling somebody who's told someone who's to telling me, and I just don't believe it. And they're like, oh, no, you go to the Department of Agriculture website. So I was like, okay, I, I, don't, I don't know if I believe you, but here we go. So I pulled it up, and sure enough, it was in a section on the Kansas Department of Agriculture's website that had this provision on there. And I started clicking around and in my head, and Dave, you'll know this, I was like, well, it's not, there's no way this is actually gonna be enforced. Like th there's just, that's not possible. And it sure enough on there says like, it, this is what we think about raw milk. You cannot advertise it. And then I, so I was like, okay, well, I've got to talk to someone about this. And I, and I started traveling around the state and I cannot tell you, it was so depressing because there were so many people who were producing raw milk and they were told, I mean, it was being enforced. And so that people who had spent their entire lives producing and selling raw milk were afraid to talk about it away from the farm. So as a like a real life practical experience, what would happen is people would go into uh, like the town square and somebody would come up and say, hey, I heard you sell raw milk. Um, can you sell me some? And the people the producers I think is this a government is this somebody from the government that's right trying, am I about to be to informed on right yeah and yeah. so they would say well why don't you come back to the farm and I can and I can tell you about it there and the people were like well I'm not like I'm not interested in doing that and so they would lose out on all these sales yeah and there was one individual who said well what I would do was I would talk about what raw milk meant to me 
and what it was like when I was a kid and what my family does. And then I would, and then I would invite them back. And, and so they'd almost have to speak in like an allegory. It was right. Yeah. Totally crazy to me. <clears throat> well, hey, Sam, we are we are coming up on a commercial break. So so why don't you go ahead and, and tell us what court did you sue in and what was the outcome there? All right. So we sued in Shawnee County District Court. That's where Topeka is. And the Kansas Attorney General, to his credit, signed a consent judgment. And now people Fantastic. are allowed to advertise raw milk in Kansas for the first time in 50 or 60 years. Yeah, that, that, that is fantastic. And it, it's really an illustration of the power of the public interest litigation model, um, you know, to go to find these injustices that are taking place, um, to bring them to light, uh, and then hopefully get a good outcome. You know, I'm glad you mentioned a consent judgment because um, in many ways that is, you know, the, the quickest and easiest way to get a, a success, to get a victory in a case like this. Um, you know, where basically the government just acknowledges, oh, yeah, nope, we can't do that. Um, <laughs> yep. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes we actually have to fight these things out uh, in, in litigation. And um, I'm, I'm looking forward to discussing a couple of the cases that you guys are working on uh, right now. Um, real quickly, before we go into this commercial break, I will point out that the Freedom Center, one of our early cases, ended up being decided on a similar issue. We had uh, an animal husbandry worker who um, we showed that under state law, it was perfectly legal for her to provide these services for free. Um, she couldn't get paid for it, but but it was perfectly legal for her to provide her services for free. And the way that the courts ended up ruling against us is, oh, well, even if she could have provided these services for free, the law doesn't allow her to tell people that she could provide oh these services. God. And they ruled against us on those grounds. And we said, whoa, 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 huge First Amendment problem. And, yeah. and they totally blew us off. Um, so th this is, this is one of the hazards of, um, uh, of our, our line of work too, is sometimes we are completely correct on the legal and constitutional theory. And then the courts, uh, the courts throw us a big curveball. We're going to go ahead and we're going to go into our commercial break right now. We are talking with Sam McRoberts of the Kansas Justice Institute, and we are looking forward to continuing our conversation with him on the other side of this break. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Zimmer Radio Network. We are back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. We have been talking to Sam McRoberts, who is kind of my counterpart, but in Kansas. Um, so I, of course, am the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. Sam is the litigation director for the Kansas Justice Institute. And we've been talking a little bit about uh, how he got into the litigating for liberty business. We talked about uh, the first case that he brought with the Kansas Justice Institute, a really, really interesting case dealing with whether you can tell people that you sell a perfectly legal product. Um, but, but now I want to shift to talking about cases that you are currently pursuing and, and you sent me links to a couple of them. Uh, they're both fascinating, but let's, let's talk about local honey and, and how you got involved in this particular case over there. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so we represent Ellen Fennerty. Ellen lives in Ottawa, Kansas, which is just kind of southwest of Kansas City, a little bit south of Lawrence, Kansas. And Ellen had this dream business of putting in an organic garden in her backyard and then selling the produce at the local farmer's market. And 
she also wanted to put in beehives in her backyard for a couple of different reasons. One, the bees help pollinate all the uh, produce. Right, yeah. And whatever the excess honey she's got, she wants to sell that at the local farmer's market. Right on. And Ottawa, Kansas, like a lot of cities in Kansas and probably in Missouri, have a home-based business prohibition. And so what it says is... You can't have any home-based business unless it's conducted entirely within the dwelling unit. And all home-based businesses are prohibited if they involve animal care of any type. And so the way that the code is written, since Ellen's gardens grow outside and honeybees are animals, she could not start her home-based business. And here's, here's kind of what I found so interesting about this. Ellen, to her great credit, and also to her detriment, uh, initially, reached out to the city and said, hey, what kind of permit do I need to keep bees for my home-based business? And the city said, there is no permit. You can't do it. And that was it. They just flat out told her, sorry, you are prohibited from doing this. So we ended up um, representing Ellen and filed a, a lawsuit against the city of Ottawa under the Kansas Constitution. We didn't bring any federal claims. Okay. When Kansas has this really cool life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness clause modeled after the Declaration of Independence. And we said in our lawsuit, Ellen has a natural fundamental right to use her backyard in a benign way. So as long as she's not hurting anyone else, yes, the city cannot prohibit her from doing this. And the home-based business codes, as they're written, were unconstitutional um, they, only, they not only violate her property rights, but they violate her right to earn an honest living. So we, we filed this lawsuit against the city of Ottawa, and we're, the city filed an answer. They responded to the lawsuit and said basically they were going to move to dismiss the case initially. And now it turns out that the city of Ottawa has come to their senses, and they did the right thing, and they have changed the codes to allow Ellen to have her gardening and beekeeping in her backyard. And so the case... Does that uh, moot the case, or, or are you still going to be able to move forward with, with the lawsuit? So I do think it's going to moot the case, because the way that they have done it is they addressed nearly everything we had put in our lawsuit. Okay. And so they've they basically made it so it's nearly impossible for us to continue litigating um, but at the end of the day, for Ellen, this is a significant victory for her. She gets to do what she wants to do, um, and the city's not going to be standing in her way. Well, and, and it's it's a victory for the Kansas Justice Institute as well, because you have affected positive policy change, at least in this city, and it now becomes a model you can point to for other cities that have imposed similar restrictions. And yeah. so, so I, we would, yeah, I know we'd always prefer to get a court judgment that binds, uh, not just the parties, but also potentially binds other courts considering similar issues going forward. But, but again, this is a vindication of the public interest litigation model because if you can win a case through legislation, you know, that is a positive outcome as well. You have positively impacted the course of policy in your state. And so I think that that's certainly something to celebrate. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. We're, we're really excited about it, but you are right. It would have been nice to get a ruling 
from the judge to say, oh, you know, this is a, this is totally unconstitutional. But I do think that this is going to be a model for other challenges to home-based business restrictions throughout the state. Fantastic. And, and quite frankly, like Dave, I want to I want to point out the great work you did in your turf case out of St. Louis, and I, I think your client was Mrs. Duffner. Is that right? Yeah, sure enough. I mean, I loved, I, I read all of your pleadings. I read all your publicity on the case. You did an awesome job uh, there. And uh, you guys were a template for what we were doing in Kansas. So great work there. Well, thanks. You know, when you mentioned that, that provision in the Kansas Constitution, I wanted to remind our listeners, Missouri's got a similar provision that goes even a little bit further. So Article 1, Section 2 of the Missouri Constitution um, specifies that all citizens have a natural right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and the right to enjoy the gains of their own industry. And oh, that nice. and that has in the past been used to protect economic liberty, the right to earn a living in a common profession. They struck the Missouri Supreme Court in uh, the early 1900s struck down a barber regulation um, because it it defied the right to enjoy the gains of your own industry. Um, so we are still looking for ways to enforce that here in Missouri. We actually invoked that provision in the animal husbandry case. And uh, like I said, the courts just really ignored it, which blew my mind. Um, but thank you so much for working to enforce these, um, you know, unusual state constitutional provisions that really should be a wellspring of liberty for our citizens, you know. And, and one of the things I want to point out is is this is how the work of organizations like ours can complement each other. So if Sam has success in Kansas in one of his cases, especially one dealing with a state constitutional provision that uh, is similar to one that Missouri has, I can then bootstrap on that. I can point to his case in Kansas and say, here's what the Kansas courts did with a similar provision. You should rule the same way here in Missouri and vice versa. And so that's that's one important element to the work that we're doing is that we can kind of um, bolster each other, mutually reinforce each other in the work that we're doing in our own states. Uh, we are running a little bit short on time. Can you, in about a minute and a half, tell us about this other case that you wanted to uh, to share with us about property rights? Yeah, absolutely. So in Kansas, if you train a hunting dog how to sit or point, the government's allowed to conduct warrantless searches on your property. And that is insane. It is totally crazy. I couldn't believe this one either. And the government has taken the position that dog training from your rural home is considered a pervasively regulated industry, and therefore they don't need a search warrant. Now, here's where it gets even worse, Dave. The district court in Kansas agrees with the government and has dismissed our case. And we are now on appeal to the 10th Circuit where we are aggressively and strenuously arguing that, yes, dog trainers actually do have a Fourth Amendment right to demand the government get a search warrant or at least an administrative warrant before they can come onto your property and search. So here's another example of where we can support each other. Look at our briefing in Calzone versus Hawley, where we took on a very similar issue. Only your case is even more ridiculous. We were dealing with a guy driving uh, a big truck, and they said that that constituted uh, the the practice of commercial trucking, uh, which at least arguably is pervasively regulated. But but this situation is absolutely bizarre. I'm going to send you our briefs, and hopefully you'll be able to make good use of them. And the Tenth Circuit will do the right thing. Sam. 
Thank you so much for being on the show. Love the work that you do. I'm looking forward to seeing you next month in uh, in D.C. But in the meantime, we're going to a commercial break. Come back with us on the other side. We'll continue talking about liberty. This is Dave Rowland on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show. We are back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. We uh, have had some fantastic conversations this morning. We uh, chatted with a reporter from the Epic Times about some Supreme Court cases. We've chatted with uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft about a case that the Missouri Supreme Court just heard last week. Uh, we spent the first part of this hour talking with Sam McRoberts at the Kansas Justice Institute about the fantastic litigating for liberty that he's doing over there. And now uh, we are pleased to be chatting with Murray Sabrin uh, about uh, economics. He is a professor of finance at the An- Anisfield School. School of Business at Ramapo College. So, Mr. Sabrin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being on with us this morning. Great to be with you, Dave. Yeah, so um, if you would, just uh, what are you interested in chatting about today? I I heard you have a real issue with schmucks. Is that right? Well, every month I give up my award to uh, someone, usually from the political class, who has demonstrated uh, their uh, economic illiteracy, their... uh, total uh, fecklessness as, as a uh, member of uh, the political uh, elite in this country. And uh, this month, I, I gave uh, three awards because uh, there are so many of them out there. Uh, <laughs> I, I was about to say, from, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like there's no shortage of candidates for this award. <laughs> Every oh, month, uh, you could I probably could... name a, about a dozen schmucks. But, but yeah, I'm interested to hear who you got this month. Well, this month um, I usually uh, only have one, but with uh, with the news cycle being what it is, and the uh, and the antics of uh, members of Congress and uh, state legislatures and governorships, um, we start with uh, the, uh, Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, where, where I lived for uh, several decades, uh, who's the epitome of um, of uh, political corruption in the United States. He, he basically. Uh, uh, avoided uh, uh, jail time because a hung jury couldn't convict him several years ago when the uh, Justice Department brought uh, bribery uh, uh, allegations against him. And so now he's got uh, nearly a half a million dollars in cash in his uh, house. He's got gold bars, and he claims that he's worried about the federal government confiscating money. Well, he's part of the federal government, so he's saying that... Uh, his colleagues in, in the Biden administration and in Congress are, are on the verge of confiscation. That's why he has $500,000. I mean, the man is, is just so insulting to the intelligence of the American people and the voters of New Jersey. Uh, he, uh, he richly deserves this award because um, he, is, he is the poster child for term limits. He's been in Congress since the 19, early 1990s between the congressman and the U.S. senator. He's been there for 30 years. And... Um, He's just a he's just not a nice individual. Plus, he's a, he's a warmonger. He he believes that we should be uh, intervening all over the world to spread democracy. That's not what the federal government is supposed to be doing, because it's certainly not in the Constitution as one of the authorized activities in the federal government. So he richly deserves it. Then, of course, you have that uh, clown congressman from New York City, uh, Jamal Bowman, who uh, pulled this <laughs> yeah. fire alarm. In, 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 in the staircase in, in, the, in uh, the House of Representatives, claiming he didn't know it was a fire alarm, which means he's illiterate because it says clearly fire alarm on the, um, 
And he was a principal in the New York City school system. So it tells you something about the state of New York City school administrators. Well, he, and what wasn't his wasn't his argument? He he said he was trying to get over to the House chamber for a vote, and yeah. and he thought that pulling the fire alarm would would get him over there more quickly. I just just an absolutely ridiculous claim. And and weren't there like three or four different signs all around that basically yeah. said, you know, don't pull the fire alarm? I, and the other thing is what he did, he essentially yelled fire in a crowded theater because he did a false alarm. That's uh, either a misdemeanor or a felony. I don't know what the statutes are. In yeah, I, I think it's state. a misdemeanor, but it, but it is an offense. It's a criminal offense. Oh, my goodness. I mean, uh, for, for someone uh, uh, who's a member of the House of Representatives to do such an egregious act of of stupidity is, is just mind-boggling, and and if he's not censured, and uh, you can make a good case for expelling him because uh, th- there's no basis for someone like that to be in Congress. Um, and besides, he's such a left-wing lunatic that you wonder um, how many more uh, people like that will uh, will Americans elect uh, in the next election cycle. Yeah, at, at a bare my- minimum, he's definitely worthy of of the schmuck label. Oh, and then, of course, you have Governor uh, Gavin Newsom after the death of Senator Feinstein, who the Democrats uh, dragged into the con- into the Senate uh, because she was not in good health, as everyone could see. And she died a few hours after she cast a vote in, in the Senate last Thursday. Uh, he said he's only going to uh, replace uh, Senator Feinstein with a black woman. Can you imagine if any chief executive said that in, 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 the, in the business world? They will only... Uh, select a person of a certain gender or uh, ethnicity or race to be uh, to be part of their team. Uh, everyone would be screaming bloody murder. Of well, and in in light of the U.S. Supreme Court's recent decision on affirmative yeah. action, it would it would likely be a violation of federal law to say that. But they can get away with anything, members of Congress and the president. What did he say when he uh, appointed um, the Supreme Court justice? I'm going to I'm going to do a black woman. And this is just so egregious, so racist. So uh, it's part of racialism, which is which was at the heart of, of of Germany in the 1930s. That your race determined your status in society. And um, this is getting to the point where people are really fed up, and um, and you just wonder where this is going. And I think if it gets, to, there's always a tipping point. We know that worries me, and I didn't put this in the. Um, in my uh, Substack uh, update the other day on murraysaven.substack.com. But what really concerns me is that with the flood of immigrants coming into this country through the southern border, who did not use the proper method to do this, the Democrats are going to try to harvest their votes with mail-in ballots. And that's the thing that could make 2024 the most fraudulent election, not only in American history, but probably world history. Because what would be the check of someone getting a, a ballot in the mail and uh, sending it in and there'd be no checks and balances at the, um, at the uh, polling place? And now, I actually, I'm going to push back with you on this one because um, every state has a log of registered voters in their state. Yeah. And you, you can't get on the registered voter list unless you have the proper identification to begin with. And, and so if someone were to put a ballot in the hands of a, a person who's not legally registered to vote, that would be apparent once they tried to cast their ballot. And, and so I actually do think that there are checks. And now, to, to help you understand where I'm coming from on this, I've actually won uh, a, a contest 
to to say that there was election fraud. We had a situation in St. Louis City in 2016 where uh, mm. the family that ran North St. Louis for basically three decades had been doing it by manipulating absentee ballots. Um, and we were able to go in and prove that that there were several hundred ballots that were illegally counted and that threw the election to uh, the, the family that had run the, the north part of the city. And, and so they ended up getting voted out because we won that election contest. But that having been said, I do sometimes think that the concerns about voter fraud can be overstated. Not that they always are, but that they can be overstated. And so I, I do think that although there are legitimate concerns about fraud, that's a particular one that I'm not worried about is the idea that, um, illegal immigrants might somehow tip the balance of an election. I think that we've got plenty of safeguards in place to prevent that from happening. There are other areas of potential election fraud that I do think we need to focus on, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it's a possibility because uh, I lived long enough to see assassinations, uh, undeclared wars, as we've all seen the last couple of decades and uh, all sorts of um, corrupt activities coming out of Washington and state capitals and, and of course, local. I, I lived in New Jersey, which is the, sort of the uh, mecca for political corruption in, 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 um, in American history. So I don't put anything past the political class. And uh, we know Republicans and Democrats sometimes work together for whatever nefarious uh, goals they want to achieve. And so I'm not very optimistic about the integrity of elections, even though uh, it hasn't been proven definitively in a court of law that there's been corrupt, there was corruption in 2020. But the point is there were a lot of uh, uh, red flags that occurred uh, on election night that um, make me and other people skeptical about uh, what was it a fair and honest election. Having said that, um, we are headed for a very difficult time in this country because the polarization is as great as any time, uh, I guess, even leading up to the Civil War in, in the country, because people are just so um, dug in, in on their positions. And unfortunately, because the federal government has expanded its role in our society with the income tax, with the Federal Reserve, with all these regulatory agencies, with, with uh, military intervention all over the world, is that it's very hard to change that mindset that psychology that culture that we have in this country well and, and part and, of the uh, problem is is that the major parties have insulated themselves against competition yeah. so for mm -hmm, example absolutely. third party candidates or independent candidates have an extraordinarily difficult time just getting on the ballot much less actually being able to compete they get excluded from debates they don't get the media coverage that other candidates get and and so that makes it incredibly difficult for someone from outside of one of the major parties to you know shake things up to give voters an alternative and this is something that's you know i've been on my hobby horse about for for quite some time um have you thought about the the possibility of ranked choice voting as an alternative to the status quo um in other words basically um I, my opinion is is that ranked choice voting would open up the competition. It would give voters an opportunity to consider candidates who do not necessarily appeal to the base of the two major political parties and therefore might actually create a much needed degree of diversity and consensus when it comes to um, the candidates that get elected. I, do you have any thoughts on that? Feel free to disagree with me, too. Yeah, I, I haven't done a deep dive. I know there, there, there are a lot of third-party uh, officials that think that uh, ranked choice voting will give them um, 
a, a, a fair shot at an election. So I've run as a libertarian candidate in the state of New Jersey. I was the first third-party candidate to get into the debate. God bless you. Party candidate. And the only reason I did that is because there was, um, uh, if you raised enough money, you get matching funds from the state, and that mm-hmm. requires you to be in a debate. So I did that in 1997, and I was in three debates with the incumbent uh, Republican governor and the Democratic challenger. And uh, it was an incredible experience to see the, how programmed the major party candidates are with their talking points. No matter what question was asked, they had their stock answers. Oh, yeah. and there was no creativity, imagination. And uh, uh, the point I make in, in my memoir, From Immigrant to Public Intellectual, American Story, the last two chapters I devote to my 97 campaign, is that even though I didn't win, and there was no expectation of winning, we had an impact on public policy, such Absolutely. as raising the speed limit to 65, getting automobile deregulation down the road, uh, having uh, free speech expanded in New Jersey because we had a lawsuit against my town because they, uh, there was an ordinance that didn't allow uh, property owners to put a political sign on their property. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a political sign. We went to court, and the uh, judge threw out the ordinance as a gross violation of the First Amendment. So you don't have to win as a third party to affect change. And the perfect example of that is the Socialist Party in 1912 if you look at that platform, Dave, everything's been enacted, and we've never had a socialist president or a socialist Congress, but yet those principles, those ideas of the Socialist Party have been uh, diffused in American society since 1912, and here we are in 2023 with basically a quasi-socialist uh, U.S. economy. And that's why it's so important to have voices like yours, like mine, out there spreading the message of liberty and in the importance and essentiality of liberty to our entire system of government uh mr sabrin we are going to have to go we've got a, a break coming up thank you so much for being on the show with us today i sure appreciate it thanks so much Dave. Take all right uh listeners stick around with us we'll be coming back on the other side of this commercial break talking about more about liberty uh, this is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan on the Gary Nolan Show. We are back. This is Dave Rowland filling in for Gary Nolan today. And, um, you know, b- before the show, I come in, uh, I-, I try to get here about 20 minutes early, and I-, I usually have the chance to chat with Brian a little bit um, just about what we're going to talk about on the show uh, on any given day. And we had a really good conversation this morning. We were talking about the the dysfunction in Washington, D.C., um, and particularly when it comes to the way that Congress handles spending and the way that they do appropriations bills and things like that. And, and Brian, if you would, could, could you kind of recreate uh, what, I, I what you were try. asking about? Yeah, I mean, the way the sausage is made in government is entirely different than, say, we do in our own household. Right. And I think if people realize that... It's kind of the same that you're way out of bounds. Let me put it in a different perspective. Let's say that we, I had a leaky roof, and we, we knew that we had to have a new roof installed. And the wife wasn't ready to spend that much money at the time. And she said, well, I tell you what, if you're going to do a roof, then I want a gazebo out in the backyard. And all of a sudden, we're bickering over the roof and the gazebo. And, you know, you both give in to the spending and you've spent money on stuff that you don't necessarily need. There, there could be a cheaper way to accomplish both of your goals. And it seems like at every turn, our government never does the right thing. 
Yeah. Like, well, yeah. we have to go along to get along. And well, so. yeah. And so to, to kind of reframe that or to, to rephrase it, you know, basically you've got two different groups that want to spend money on different things. Both of them think that we should not be spending more than a certain amount of money. But as long as they get to spend money on their thing, then we should be allowed to spend money on our Correct. thing. And so you end up spending a lot more yes. than you really yes. have. Yes, that's, that's the point I was trying to make. Yeah, and, and so one of the things that Brian asked this morning is, is he was talking about the idea of a single subject requirement for bills in Congress. Which we don't have. Yeah, we, we, which we do not have. But one of the things I pointed out to him is states learned this lesson a long time ago. And so a number of the states, including Missouri, have this kind of restriction in the Constitution. So, for example, uh, you are not supposed to be able to pass a bill uh, if it includes more than one subject, if it addresses more than one subject. Um, the subject is supposed to be clearly stated in the title of the bill, and that's not supposed to change from the time that you introduce the bill to the time that it's passed. Um, so, so the states have kind of learned this lesson that good governance sometimes requires putting careful limits on the way that bills can be passed, the bills that can be considered. And Congress has not yet gotten that message. And, and we talked about how um, it's possible if you had, um, you know, solid enough leadership in Congress Perhaps they could self-impose some of these limits, like, you know, when they're adopting their own rules, they could create a rule that says we're only going to adopt bills in this way right. if they have if they pertain to a single subject that's clearly expressed, et cetera. Um, but but really, the only way to make sure that Congress is doing this is to have a constitutional amendment. And, and that's the kind of a constitutional amendment I could get behind. I, I think that there should be. Um, much more significant restrictions on how Congress goes about passing bills because you get into, you know, these these legislative evils, the sort of log rolling and backroom dealing um, that that really just ends up digging us this enormous financial hole. Um, and, and that's part of the reason that we're dealing with the problems that we're dealing with now as far as the deficit and the national debt is concerned. Isn't that right? Yes, and like the uh, the one subject at a time act that Jim Babka has been pushing yeah. for mm -hmm. forever. Why do you think that the current body just refuses to take this ish, take this up? <laughs> because Are they because of it? it would gore all of their oxen. Well, that's what we need to so do. The, the, so the the way that Congress passes so much of of these appropriations bills is. Every congressman has their own pet project that pertains to their own district. And by golly, if they're not going to get the pork for their, for their district, then they're going to they derail why we're three, everyone else. trillion dollars in Exactly. Debt. Well, one of the other things that we were talking about this morning, Brian, is, is, uh, this is most apparent, I think, when it comes to military spending. Every year, the military tells Congress how much money they want or what, what items they want in their right. budget. And every single year, Congress comes back and gives them far more than the military actually wants. So we're, we're funding weapons systems and, and, and vehicles that the military has said they do not want and cannot use simply because some congressman wants pork for their district. It's infuriating. It's irresponsible. It is. We're going to keep talking about this on the other side of this break. This is Dave Rowland on the Zimmer Radio Network. This is the Gary Nolan Show.